the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much, and we're delighted to have you with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. She is a nationally known gerontologist, chair of the board of the National Council on Aging, and in her spare time, executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and other stuff. Wow. That, that, that makes that does make it sound like I run around a lot, and I kind of run. I do run and around do. a lot. I guess I do. I guess yeah, I do that. You run a lot. Hey, we've got a great guest coming up in just a few minutes. Carol Levine, who's been on before, uh, who'll be talking about care coordination, caregiving, and uh, technology. Yeah, and I just want to say for anyone who is has not heard Carol Levine or is not familiar with her work, she has such good thinking on caregiving. We're going to. Um, talk about some resources that her organization has to offer. So I hope you'll stick with us. Um, Carol Levine is a treat. She's brilliant, and she, in 1993, was a MacArthur Foundation Award recipient. Which means she's smarter than a the genius. average bear. It's a genius, a genius award. They call them genius, genius awards. Award. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty cool. So of all the things that have people excited it's the Google driverless car that a whole lot of folks are hoping for. Well, I have to say that that is, I am putting all of my bets on this driverless car. And there was recently an article in the New York Times business section that I am not the only one betting on the car. Apparently, uh, for those of you who are wanting this technology and hoping that your car will drive you, either because you want somebody to drive your mom around or you just want to read a book uh, or do something else and not have to drive. Uh, there are in the next five years, they think that there's going to be something. I don't know if it was 20 billion or 200 billion. It was billions of dollars of research going into making these safe. And now all the states are vying to set up, you know, set their themselves up to get the research dollars so that, you know, they're creating empty small towns. We're no, with nobody in them, so the car can drive around and test these different env- environments. I think Virginia has donated X number, like seventy miles of road, urban and rural roads, so the cars For can go, can test and drive all of this. So, and and the other interesting thing was the car companies were talking about. They actually think they will be encouraging you to like be watching a movie instead of driving. So your car is driving you because they want you to be looking at the control panel just in case you need to intervene. So they think when these first come out, you're going to have to watch the car make sure you don't need that. If you've ever seen the movie, what was the one with Will Smith uh, where he's, you know, he's. The, the robot makes a decision, right, and right. it really needed to be a human decision. Um, so if we need a human decision, they want you to see that warning. You need to take over the car. And if you're actually reading a book or getting bored staring at the control panel, they're afraid people will get bored. So they're saying, all right, we're gonna, it's going to come with instructions to say, watch a movie. That way you'll be looking or check your email, work on the dash so that you're actually connected to that system and can intervene, which I thought was fascinating. Well, it's like pilots who go on these long, long flights with automatic uh, uh, driving for the plane. Right, which works 99.9% of the time. But when it doesn't. But when it doesn't, you need a human intervention. Exactly. Yeah, so so all this, so five years is really not that far. If you think about, ooh, five years ago, what were you doing? If you could have a, a driverless car out on the street, you know, go down to the corner at, to your the car lot and check it out. I mean, it's fabulous. I really think of all of the technologies, this one uh, has the most promise to be revolutionary. I mean, if the car revolutionized the country, think what the driverless car is going to do for us. And if you're stopped for speeding, 
Who do they ticket? That's right. Oh, just give it to the car. Exactly. But you won't be stopped for speeding because you won't be speeding. Because the car knows. Because the car the car wow. knows. It's going to be cool. I want your son to be the voice of my automatic car. <laughs> That's right. Ooh, and what if, yeah, if you could program your voice and it can just take off. Okay, so you see, I can just like go, <laughs> go with, with this whole thought. That's because you're heavy into robots. Well, Anyhow. I'm, I'm fascinated. No, I, I really want the car to drive me in my old age. I already know I need it. <laughs> Well, speaking of old age, because when you uh, move into your 60s, 70s, <clears throat> pardon me, 80s and 90s, <clears throat> there's always a risk of Alzheimer's. Man or woman, who's at greater risk? Well, this is the bad news for those of us who are women. Um, and, you know, looking at the research, the, the latest science from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, researchers found that memory and thinking skills in women with mild cognitive impairment, so that's when you're slightly confused, and mild cognitive impairment can lead to Alzheimer's. It doesn't always. I'm sure all of us can think of somebody who has a few memory problems, but they're doing pretty good. They're sort of functional. Yeah, they're functional. Um, but in women, twice as many women actually got Alzheimer's than men from MC, you know, after having MCI. So wow. women, much higher risk. Um, and then there was another study in Oregon that showed women have a higher risk of experiencing post-operative um, dementia. So think of somebody you know who's had anesthesia, general anesthesia. It's going to be me September 9th. Well, and they, and they come, people, it's, it's harder on you when you're older. And what they found is that women, older women, their brains actually shrink after having general anesthesia, wow. or they tend to shrink more than men. Most people do fine with anesthesia, but I can think of at least five people off the top of my head that I know had general anesthesia. One of those is myself. <laughs> um, I had memory loss for like six months after just having a routine procedure with general anesthesia. So if when I'm you know even older, I shudder to think I'm not going to have any surgery. And then women have more of those scary amyloid plaques, those, yeah, those, thing, those things in your brain that the they tangles. think actually lead to Alzheimer's and they don't know. So wow. what does all this mean? It means that the Alzheimer's Association said there's enough concern about women. We don't know why women get Alzheimer's more. Is it because, you know, menopause, estrogen levels change? Is it something in our genes? Why is that? That they're actually trying to raise about $5 million, which really doesn't it's sound nothing. like that much, no. um, to do a study specifically to look at women and wow. Alzheimer's. Well, there's good news in that because historically, medical research has been male-dominated. Well, it has, it has, and since women outnumber men, and and if yes. more of them, more of them are alive, <clears throat> more and more of them have Alzheimer's, um, you know, it's like over seventy-one, eleven percent of men, sixteen percent of women have Alzheimer's. So it's a significant difference, and it bears looking into for all of us. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on nine thirty a.m. The answer. You can hear this show. As you're listening now, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, or podcasts are available as well. Just go to caregiversos.org and look for podcasts. So the question that keeps coming back to weight loss, weight loss, weight loss is sleep and weight loss. Well, and why do we talk about this? We talk about... Um Caregiving, the difficulties in caregiving, caregivers not taking care of themselves. We recently had a caregiver here in the studio that talked about the weight gain that she had because she didn't have time to take care of herself. It was Barrett Mason, and she was a wonderful guest. And the stress that she is under caring for her mother is just the two of us walked out of here exhausted. I, yeah, absolutely. And that was only an hour. Yeah, we, just listening. Just listening to her. Yeah. So, you know, she's talking about weight gain. And then we know that caregivers also are often sleep deprived. So is there a correlation? Uh, so the research says actually yes. That, and, you know, even if you're, you're not heavy duty into caregiving, if you're just trying to lose weight just because you want to be healthier, um, not getting enough sleep slows down your metabolism it actually um, can change the, your hormone levels that control appetite. So you, we actually have more difficulty eating healthy. We, there's some other studies that showed sleep-deprived, not sleep-deprived. Those people who didn't get enough sleep had a lot more trouble turning down that McDonald's Big Mac and those Oreo cookies um, than the people that had more sleep. So there is a direct correlation between sleep and appetite, and, and you need to give some thought to that. Sleep is, uh, you know, it's like exercise. Exercise is the magic pill for so many things, um, and sleep is creeping up 
in importance. Uh, I, I often ask, you know, why do we have to sleep so many hours? It seems like our life just passes by. Okay, I can't answer that cosmic question, but I can tell you that by not doing it, it it's part of our, our human makeup and we have to take it seriously. We need seven hours, eight hours? Well, I think people are different. They always say, you know, you should do it naturally and caregivers never get to just go to sleep when they're no, tired and wake they don't. up. But, you know, eight hours is still the norm. Uh, some people need less. Some people need more. But you're going to have to... Just like you set aside a space to, to a place you can go in your home to reduce your stress as a caregiver, mm-hmm. you need to be conscious about creating an environment when you do get to go to sleep that's going to be conducive to sleep. So turn off the electronic gadgets. That blue light actually disrupts your the circadian cycle that tells you, okay, now it's time to go to sleep. Electronic lights are bad. Um, you know, you want to exercise, not too close to bedtime. Uh, and you need to let people know when you're not getting enough rest. So maybe you're telling people, hey, can you pick up a meal? Hey, can you take my loved one to the doctor? Hey, can you watch my loved one, you know, can, or can I put my loved one in a facility for a weekend rest or a week? I need to catch up on my sleep. I like that. That sounds good. A lot has been written of late about sugar and the dangers of sugar. City of San Antonio, uh, through the Health Collaborative, Liz Lutz and her team have launched a major initiative, uh, cooperative with a bunch of agencies in San Antonio, targeting sugar, cut back on sugar. And then I read over the weekend in the New York Times that a major soft drink company has, to the tune of multi-millions of dollars, funded and underwritten research to try to prove it's like the old tobacco companies, that sugar is not bad, that it's not the villain, not the enemy. And the problem is you just got to exercise more. What you eat doesn't matter. Well, at the Healthy Aging Summit a few weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. for the first Healthy Aging Summit where we brought together researchers, um, the healthcare community, and the social services. And there was a researcher there that was talking about – weight gain and weight loss and obesity and diabetes, and when did all of this happen to us in the United States? And what he pointed his finger to were, was the, the campaign in the 70s where we said we had to cut fat, right? We said we got to get rid of all of the fat, um, and what that led to was more carbs. Now, it wasn't the sugary sweet carbs that you're talking about, but those are carbs too. It still turns into so sugar. So it was the change. We cut out the fat. We filled our diet with more carb-rich foods. Um, we have become much more reliant on soft drinks uh, as a nation in terms of our kids drinking more of them over the last 20 years. So that's a scary thought because he said, actually, it's the carbs. So it is that sugary soda. It It is all of the high-carb foods that we eat. It's the highly processed. And if you... If you want to read highly processed, read the bottle of that sugary drink that you're drinking and look at all the stuffs in it. Or do the old test they used to scare us with in elementary school where you drop a tooth into, you know, a, a sugary drink like that and see what happens to it. Just watch it fall apart. It'll scare you. When I was a kid, we'd use one of those soft drinks to take rust off a of chrome. There you go. So rust Works off like chrome. Magic. Do you want this running around in your body? So, mm. Carol Levine joins us in just a moment right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, you hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff but that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me. And you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to. And, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. We are so pleased you are sticking with us as we had... Previewed, we've got a great special guest coming on who has been with us before, 
Carol Levine also, as it turns out, will be the keynote speaker for the upcoming 2015 San Antonio Caregivers Summit, and we'll give you some more information about that as well. She directs the United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Project, which looks at developing partnerships between healthcare professionals, family caregivers, especially during transitions in healthcare settings. I'm Ron Aaron, and Carol Zerniel is with me. And Carol Levine, welcome to Caregiver SOS on Air. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you again. Or we should say welcome back again. Carol Levine <laughs> is our, our favorite returning guest. Uh, in oh, fact, well, thank you. you're an exclusive club. There aren't a whole lot that we bring back. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm very, I'm very touched. And as I had mentioned to you briefly off the air, we are so excited to uh, be welcoming you to San Antonio for the Caregivers Summit, uh, which is coming up. And, and Carol, maybe a couple details on that real quick. Yes, the um, summit is going to take place on Friday, November the 13th. Um, here in San Antonio at the Whitley Theological Seminary, which is a beautiful location. Um, but the exciting thing is that the entire region uh, is invited to come, and Carol Levine's going to keynote. Uh, we also have Tam Cummings, who has expertise specifically, if I can say that word right, uh, in Alzheimer's problem behaviors. And Carol Birch, who is an elder law attorney. Uh, will be joining us at That's the summit. Cool. So great information. All of the vendors that have uh, play a role in assisting and supporting caregivers in our community. And we're excited to have Carol Levine on board. Carol was a uh, recipient. How many Carols? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I, did you notice that? We were going to call it like, we were trying to think of a name of all the Carols. Or, all yeah, there's, there's at least there's three right. of us so far. Right. If you know any others you'd like us to invite. <laughs> there must be a plural word for a, 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 a group of we're Carol Cubed. Now there are carols with an E and carols with no E. Oh, dear. Well, now, now we're Liza uh, with an, Liza with an right, I and Liza exactly. with an E. Yeah. Carol Levine in 1993 won a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Actually, you were awarded it. You don't compete for it. You don't even know you're up for it. And it was for her work on AIDS policy and ethics. She was named a WebMD Health Hero in 2007. And she has done an incredible amount of writing uh, especially in the area that, that we're going to be talking about today. And I know one of the things, Carol, that you, uh, you wanted to talk about was kind of preparing and organizing and getting ready for caregiving. Yes, well, <clears throat> I think that what, one of the things that caregivers do and don't probably acknowledge as much as they should is coordinating care, and that's a really big part of of the job these days, and it's not getting easier, I have to say. Um, one of the things that's happened in the in the really fast-changing world of, of health care, um, integration, um, aggregation, whatever Asian you want to talk about, is that more and more agencies are working together, and they understand they need for coordinating their care and so they, in their infinite wisdom, appoint people who they call care coordinators. The problem is for a family caregiver is that, you know, you don't often know exactly what these people are going to be doing, who, where their accountability and authority begins and ends, and what, as a caregiver, you wind up often having to coordinate the coordinators so I think it's something new that's happening. It's not totally new, but it's happening at a faster pace. I don't. At least it's happening in our area. I'm not sure about um, San Antonio or Texas, but I can't believe it's all that different there. Well, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we have care coordinators, and a lot of times, each care coordinator thinks they are the care coordinator, uh, and they and and the caregiver may or may not let them know that hey, I've got five of you people coming in and out of my home. Uh, you know, yeah. I actually have had a client that I think the record was seven different agencies were going wow. into the home, and none of them knew about the other person. They're like, oh, well, we assumed you were talking to each other. We're like, no, right. no, that's right. not really happening. And <laughs> and I think there there is um, we. A, a some confusion about the terminology, care coordinator, case manager, case coordinator, navigator. I mean, all these different terms are used, and they don't always mean the same thing. A nurse who's a care coordinator has different 
knowledge and expertise and authority than an office worker who is a navigator or a care coordinator who is really able only to set up appointments. Not that that's not important, but the the level of expertise they bring is different, and it hasn't got sorted out yet. And so family caregivers, in addition to doing it, have to help these people know where they're, what else is going on in, in the world that they're, that they're trying to coordinate. It, it can be complicated. Um, we developed um, a family caregiver's guide for care coordination on our Next Step in Care website to try to give people um, a way of looking at this job that they're going to be doing and how, how to work better with the professionals who are assigned to help them but who may not you know who may not know as you say all the other people who are involved in in doing the care so it's it's changing and i think it will um in the end be a good thing but the um breaking in process can be a little a little daunting now for those of you who just joined us you're listening to Carol Levine, who's the United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Projects uh, Director. She has been very involved in caregiving and related issues, and we're talking with her first about care coordination, and then uh, we hope to take up a topic that caregivers uh, can be helped with or maybe not, and that's how do you integrate newer and newer technology into the caregiving process. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernial. Well, and I thought, Carol, I think Carol makes a very good point about the, the different types of people that may be care coordinators. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a the difference she was describing between a nurse and an office worker, but a lot of uh, organizations are now using community health workers right. for navigators. So this may be a completely untrained person. It's somebody that is from the neighborhood, from the community, that is specifically trained to navigate, help you find where you're supposed to go. Um, and that's a very different skill set as well. And and social workers, a different perspective than the nurse. Right, so, right. you know, and, and I don't know, I, I haven't had the chance to look at your guide. So on your next step in care website, do you talk about asking that question Tell you know, to the care coordinator? Tell me about your background. Tell me. Yes, we do. We do and we also give some um, ideas about how best to um, stay organized, to know who is involved in your family member's care, what their responsibility is. The person who is coordinating care for your health plan or your insurance coverage has a different goal, really, than someone who is following up from a hospital stay and, and doing a, a follow-up call and saying, how's everything going today? Um, it's, a different, it's a different goal, a different skill set, as you say, different training. And I think they all have value. The community health worker has particular value in understanding the you know, the mores of the community and the perhaps even the the language of the person, but that person is not going to be able to intervene on your behalf to get a faster appointment with the surgeon for a follow-up visit. So you kind of have to know who you need to work with to get what you need, and it, it does take a little bit of, um, uh, of doing. Um, we think that we also have a guide for healthcare care coordinators on how best to work with family caregivers, and that includes, you know, letting them know who you are, what you can do, who you work for, and how long your service will last. I mean, someone coming out of the hospital may, you know, that someone may be interested in your welfare for 30 days, but then you're, they go on to another case, whereas someone from your health plan or someone from a community agency has a longer-term uh, relationship with you. So it's, it's all meant to do the right thing. It's just that it's not always easy to figure out well, what, who, what if you who's think doing what. What do you think if it's, it's too many? What if you're like, I don't, I don't want to have five care coordinators or three care coordinators. Is there, what if I want one person? Is it possible for, for you to ask one of them to be like the lead coordinator and lead work with person. all those other people? That's a really good question. I think that you can certainly try, and I w- if you do that, I would pick the person who is 
the most connected and the most knowledgeable about all of the needs you have. So if the family member's needs are primarily clinical, medical, if there's a serious illness going on, you want somebody who can get to doctors, get information, get lab results, all of those things. Um, you probably need a, a nurse who's a care coordinator or case manager, as it may be called. If your needs are primarily in the community, getting transportation, getting, making sure that um, someone comes to visit, whether maybe there's a home care aid or a visiting program, then you probably don't need someone with all of those skills. Most often, of course, people need both. But I would personally opt for the person with the best connections to the to the place that where you really feel your care is centered and that probably is going to be one of the medical maybe a medical office well, let me or ask, maybe a hospital we've got uh, got to take a break in, in just a yeah. moment to catch up with news carol levine but let me ask you very quickly carol zernio uh, in the well-med model the pcp in many ways serves as the quarterback the coordinator the center contact point uh, can they be the clearinghouse for all these other folks well they would you know the the pcp is going to coordinate the health care piece but that on that team you know when you have a like an accountable care organization uh, a lot of the health plans are organized that way um, then you are going to assign a care coordinator. And, uh, and even within the WellMed system, we have co- um, complex care when people really have a lot of multiple conditions. We'll pick up on that in, in just a moment. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerno. We're talking with Carol Levine about care coordination. We're going to talk as well about new technology. <laughs> We are rolling right along here on Caregiver SOS on air. Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. Carol Levine from United Hospital Funds Families and Healthcare Project is with us. She has a number of publications she has worked on, uh, quite a few of which are of great interest or should be uh, to folks who are caregivers. She's also editor of Always on Call, When Illness Turns Families into Caregivers, the second edition out of Vanderbilt University Press, and we're talking about those kinds of issues Carol Zernia, let's pick up from uh, in the WellMed model where the PCP is the quarterback. Uh, you still are going to need care coordinators. Absolutely. The, the care coordinator is going to take care of trying to put together both those health care services and those social services, most likely. So, Carol Levine, w- when you end up in a situation where you become a caregiver, and very often uh, it's when you get that call, grandma's in the ni- you know, in the emergency room, or uh, your wife has taken a turn. Uh, you're not prepared for all this. Oh no, most people are not prepared. Um, but I've been I've been struck by how many how um, resourceful people can be when those unfortunate accidents or illnesses happen and after the first flurry of a panic i would say or anxiety or whatever fear whatever terror i don't you know no you can go all the, the extreme um most people at least settle down to doing the finding the source of what they can do getting help and do turn out to be very resourceful. We did a series of um, focus groups with some caregivers here in New York, and they had gone through some pretty tough times, but they found ways on their own to um, figure out how to do things that no one had told them how to do or told them that to expect. I I wouldn't underestimate the difficulty of all of that, but um, there is a certain resilience in people that I think we want to recognize and build on, not pushing them to the limit, but recognizing that with a little help, with a little information, and with a little support, 
people can do really incredible things. It's that we, when we don't get even that little bit of help and support, that things start to fall apart. Right. That's so when they say, I wish if I had only known. Oh, yes. <laughs> right, right. If I had only well, known, or if I knew Carol, then what I knew one now. of the most uh, common thing, re, re, you know, reports I get when people see one of our next Deaf and Care guards. Oh, if I had only known that when, and then you fill in the blank. Well, and, and let me just say right now that if, you know, I highly recommend the Next, next Step and Care website. If you go to the Family Caregiver uh, page and look at all of the different topics that you offer guides to, whether it's HIPAA, doctor visits, medication management, emergency room visits, LGBT caregiving, advanced directives, care coordination, and you have both for the family caregiver as well as a whole list of information and guides for the paid caregivers and and the health professionals that you talked about. You know, you mentioned HIPAA, and I don't want to go down that rabbit warren now, but <laughs> Carol Levine, two years ago, as I recall, we had you on talking about HIPAA, and, right. and you have absolutely been the, the front wave on concern now across the country, uh, some members of Congress hoping to uh, amend or clarify HIPAA because it's been so misapplied. New York Times did a long piece on it recently. Where we quoted you, actually, yeah. Carol, yeah. <laughs> from that article. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Oh, we got so many uh, responses to that. And um, it's, uh, it's a perennial problem. And as much as we do the misunderstand, once a misunderstanding or a myth um, gets um, embedded in the the public consciousness, or in this case, the professional consciousness, it gets very hard to unmoor it and well, and replace it with accurate information. I thought one of the best it's examples. Really amazing. One of the best examples in that piece was in a nursing home where Mrs. Jones, not her real name dies, but they won't tell any of the residents. Because it's HIPAA protected. She, oh, she's, she's out. Yeah. Oh, I Just know. amazing. It's just, well, we, we won't, we go, won't go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> no, but, we we all, we all, but we all agree. We're going to so, back yeah. out so of we'll, we'll, we'll back. We'll go back absolutely. to Next Steps in Care, the website. Absolutely phenomenal in terms of the information, um, and I encourage everyone to check that out. And, and as you... Uh, and of course, you went through this route as a caregiver for your uh, for your husband in a yes. very challenging situation. Uh, for the person who becomes a caregiver, they don't necessarily know day one about your website, or they don't know about caregiversos.org or this show, for example. No, they don't, and 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 it's um, they don't. In my own case, well, of course, it was a while ago, but I didn't have any idea that there was such a designation as family caregiver. And actually, when I first started, it was, there wasn't. It was called an informal caregiver. Carol Zernio, you'll know. Yeah, I remember you're informal, from, yes. What do I have to do to be formal? <laughs> Get dressed and, up. <laughs> uh, that was one of my first, you know, like, wait a minute, informal. That's, this is not informal. This is hard work. <laughs> Don't tell me it's a picnic. And it's anyway, every day. Um, no, but I think that um, more and more people are are seeing it happening to their friends, their colleagues, and to them to themselves. So it's not quite as unusual, um, and people do anticipate and worry about what's going to happen when their parent or other other relative is unable to care for themselves or they get the phone call that says something has happened. Um, and the stories, they don't have a place to tell their stories. Uh, that is one of the things that I think is the most useful way of, we found this in these focus groups where um, we, had, we had a purpose which was to inquire about their training and doing medication and so forth. But what the people really wanted to do was to tell their stories. And they were so grateful for that opportunity. Um, now, it wasn't a support group, but in some ways they turned it into a support group. So it was it was very revealing. I think more people need to be have places to tell their stories. And it's not that they get help from anyone particularly, but they 
have the experience of sharing, and it's been very, very powerful. Talk, talk to us, uh, if we can segue into the, the whole changes coming in technology and how you think that will okay. be integrated um, into well, caregiving. Actually, Ron, I was thinking, how am I going to make that, that segue? And then I realized that talking about care coordination, um, one of the areas in which technology can be of some help to caregivers is in creating uh, ways to manage and keep track of all of those other care coordinators or medication management or um, appointments that you have to keep. And keeping all of that information in an electronic way where you can easily update it and easily have access to it um, is one of the areas in which technology can be very, very useful. Well, there has to be an app for that. Um, yeah, there, there are. Well, the problem is there are like five thousand apps for that. So, um, <laughs> but, but I just want one, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> you just want one. Well, I'm not going to tell you which one, but you have to make a choice. Um, you have to decide for yourself. What for, me, what for me is the most useful way is do I want something separate that just manages the medications where I can keep track of the 20 medications and when they have to be given and when they have to be renewed and all of that stuff or do you want some, or do you want just one that's on um, calendars or do you want one that's sharing some of the the tasks and responsibilities with your family and friends and saying would you be able to come over on Saturday afternoon so I can do some shopping. You 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 need to decide whether for you, and it's really for you, the single app or a more comprehensive platform would be most helpful. And I don't think there's any way to know except to sort of try that out for yourself. Um, but that is certainly a way of um, that the technology can be can be helpful. Um, I haven't used that myself, but <laughs> but I could. And we do have on our website, we have medication management tool, we have a planner and, you know, all those sorts of things that can be used that are not, that are free. There are other things where they're, they're even, you know, where they're perhaps a little more updated. But um, well, I think the that- idea is to keep the information updated and in an easily accessible place. And I think that at the recent White House Conference on Aging, when they were talking about caregiving, one of the things that struck me the most were the number of organizations, technology companies that were actually participating in the White House. And they're Mm -hmm. really moving into that space, that 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring realization. People are starting to see dollar signs um, oh, and yeah. <laughs> and the, and the gentleman was had or the gentleman that was at the conference had already sold one technology company, so he's a multimillionaire, and his mother needed help, and so he's developing a whole online platform to help family caregivers, and he's raising money from all kinds of organizations. So it's it's fascinating um, how. You know, it's supply and demand, but it's also, you know, what's going on with your family. But I can, you can feel that shift. And I don't think we have yet realized, besides the Google car, the driverless car, um, what technology is going to do. And, and we're all going to eventually, I guess, have to try it out. Right. Well, I think that what, what you've described is really the state of the art at the moment. And it, Every time, and I've been doing a fair amount of work in this area with um, some of the people who are more, who are tech people, not, not, and I'm not one, but what I've learned about the, that world is that, as you say, each developer has a parent with one problem and they develop a solution around that problem and then they sell the company. Um, and it becomes, you know, and then they move on to the next. It's very idiosyncratic. What I think we need to have happen in the future is a more systematic look at what a wide range of caregivers need and will use and can afford 
since most of this is a private pay, um, not uh, not all of it's expensive, but some of it can be, and develop things that um, have real usability for family caregivers um, that are not kind of like the latest quick idea. Not that the book you're talking about that this man described is, but a lot of the things that I see advertised and promoted um, don't have a lot more going for them. And it gets very hard for um, a family caregiver consumer to sort through all of these options and say which one would which one would really work there's no evaluation of of the products and services and you know what do you do when they got break it. down and I, all I that I got to stop you right there we are flat out of time the good news is you're always fascinating to talk with <laughs> and the better news is now we're going to have to have you back Again, <laughs> and they, and and even be, and the best is she'll be here in person in November for in our November. caregiver summit, Friday the thirteenth of November. Correct. Okay. Nobody's superstitious. Carol Levine, look forward to seeing you. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS on air. Up next, take ten. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Take 10. Take 10 follows each of our Caregiver SOS programs. And along with Carol Zernio, we're joined by nationally known therapist and expert on caregiving. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us, also knows a whole lot about addictions, which puts him at the top of the list for helping people. And Carol, you had a great idea for uh, topic number one for Take 10, and it really follows our very special guest, Meryl Comer. Uh, her quick advice to caregivers was? Was... Don't second-guess the caregiver. If you're a family member, your five-minute visit or one-hour visit doesn't mean that you know everything that's going on. Uh, and if the caregiver's in there every day, don't second-guess them, which leads me to ask the question, Jamie, um, what about families? You know, we, we always, there are always the questions about the family, the family members who have too much advice that seem to know better than you, even though you're the caregiver, you're down there doing all of the work 24-7, or families that don't help. So what is it about families, and how do we get it right? Well, you know my thoughts, Carol. Getting it right requires getting a third party engaged, because this is an excellent, excellent topic for our listening audience. Everybody seems to want to second-guess somebody else, but the motives behind that come from so many different places. I, I believe they come from guilt, sometimes from shame. If it's a long-distance caregiver, they're not present to be with somebody, and their loved one is being taken care of, let's say, by a sibling or somebody else. And that's a huge feeling of powerlessness. So, you know, second-guessing comes, unfortunately, with fear, uh, that old acronym, false evidence appearing real. But it also becomes from clinical projections, meaning we're not there, so we're going to second-guess it, rather than feel comfortable trusting that person's instincts who is with them, uh, we tend to get very, very anxious. So this is like the armchair quarterback that, you know, we've got the professionals and we have the coach and that those of us at home sitting in the chair watching the game know more what's going on than that coach. I on the can't field. believe they ran that play. <laughs> yeah. 
It's exactly that, Ron. I, I can't believe they ran that play. Now, nobody's in the middle of the mix. Nobody's getting the handoff, as you say, Carol, with the quarterback uh, analogy. Uh, instead, we're, we're second-guessing and second-looking, and, and that's really a challenge here. That's why it's so critical to get this third person involved, because a lot of, I think, prep work needs to be done before a family enters into caregiving using one of their loved ones or, or siblings or family members as the primary caregiver. And when the caregiving tasks start coming fast and furiously, I always believe the first thing you need to do is involve the social worker, geriatric care manager, or the like. Right. I had a situation like this here in San Antonio, a very good friend of mine, a brother and a sister, mother needed care, couldn't live alone. So he assumed the responsibility. She lived in another city and constantly criticized, constantly criticized. So one day he said, I'm putting mommy on a plane Here's when she arrives. You can do it better. Obviously, you take care of her. She was back in San Antonio within two weeks, and then the sister said, you're right. You take it over. I'm out of this. <laughs> you, yeah. You're doing it right all along. Exactly. I was so wrong. But, but think about that, Ron. It's, it's what you say makes sense, and, and it obviously proved the point, yeah. no doubt. But think about it just simply because two adults, meaning the two people who were kind of quibbling with the, you know, the poor person who had a chronic or illness right. or an illness. Yeah, the mother in the middle. Yeah, it's like a badminton and a birdie piece. Couldn't those two have done the right thing and say, look, we both have differences. We both have different approaches to life. We actually, mom may have loved you or not loved you more or whatever the reasons are. Maybe we should get a third party to help us facilitate and mediate. So what is a geriatric care manager for those that don't know what that is? Well, I always say they're air traffic controllers who have a huge extensive curriculum uh, background in seniors and, and geriatrics. I also know that if anybody can relate to a social worker or a nurse today, those are the two professions that are pretty much the, 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 the preponderance, if you will, of, of geriatric care managers. There is a geriatric care management association that our listeners can always Google, and they will actually target people in different states uh, by zip codes. But to me, the best analogy is the air traffic controller, except they're skilled. They're extraordinarily skilled in people skills. They're, they're skilled in, in group skills, family issues, and they will be able, and this is, might be the most important thing, is to target the strengths and weaknesses of each one and how they all fit together to help the care, not only of the loved one, but of the primary family caregiver who is there. Well, and I will give an example. I actually did exactly what you said at one point. I called a, the, I looked online for, under the Geriatric Care Manager Association for a relative in another location. And then I, when I flew into town, I had set up appointments at a coffee shop, you know, an hour apart with two, my two top candidates um, as a geriatric care manager. And then I just sat down and had a conversation, kind of talked through what was going on with the care recipient, with the person, my, the family member we're caring for, what was going on with the family, and then kind of tried to get a feel for how they responded to that situation. And after interviewing both of them, and I picked the one that I felt the most comfortable with. Well, Carol, that's the ideal way to interview. It goes, again, you're trusting your gut, but then again, you are a gerontologist, so your gut has a few more years of academics attached to it. <laughs> I've got more gut than most people. <laughs> you, you do, but don't, we, don't we throw all that aside? Obviously, I'm a therapist, and as I mentioned always, that I'm a therapist. My sister's a therapist, and God rest my mother's soul, she was a therapist. So anytime a problem hit our house, we were Mo, Larry, and Curly. I was going to say, definition is, uh, of a therapist is someone who needs a therapist. Well, without a doubt, without a doubt. But but so I'm not your your academic you know work may not have mattered there because you still were a relative. But yes, you're 100 percent right. Why don't you have the direct care worker or the geriatric care manager or whomever you're interviewing go through scenarios like that, Carol? It's an ideal way to interview. All right, hold that thought for those of you who just joined us. You're listening to Take Ten on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, and we're talking about when your caregiver gets little, no, or non-productive help from other family members. So talk to us as a shrink, Dr. Jamie. What is the psychology going on in the mind of the distant caregiver who knows she, she or he can do it better and insists on telling you that? Well, they're obviously not feeling what's happening in real time, 
Ron, you know, and, and real time is you can never predict human behavior. Uh, the family caregiver who is there and the, the person who is ill are going through their own drama and trauma on an ongoing basis. And that's really totally not even uh, available to that long-distance caregiver. So the long-distance caregiver also has this incredible button where they start dreaming the horribles in their mind. And if they really didn't have a great relationship with the primary caregiver or really didn't have a great relationship with the, the care receiver, they really get anxious. And when they do, their imagination runs amok. Yeah, running amok is not good in no. any situation. Running amok is bad. Yeah, and it makes also the person who has the illness or has the issue even feel worse and feel unsafe. So this is why it's so critical to surround the person with the chronic illness uh, or even worse, a terminal illness with safety and with boundaries and with a family that can talk and get it together. But to do that, again, you probably need a facilitator. So do you have, depending on if, let's say, if the person has capacity, if they're if the person you're caring for um, is able to think clearly and make their own decisions. Do you involve them in that conversation with that geriatric care manager? Do you talk I in front do. of them? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, Carol, it's a great question. I always do. The last thing if somebody can actually cognitively handle it is that you want to marginalize them. You want them to have self-esteem and meet you as close as they can to halfway, so neither burn out. You want them to feel relevant, so you have to. Obviously, if they're not cognitively able to, able to, then that's another issue. But the interesting thing is what we're describing in this radio show is that sometimes the family, for whatever reasons of nervousness and depression or guilt, they're not even cognitively able to. So it's very important uh. to get that. Yeah, that's right. For yeah, that's kind of like uh, throwing stones. <laughs> and if the other parties won't participate, won't listen, they, that's a clear uh, directive to you that they're not going to get involved. And you really need to to let go, let God on that one, and just work with the cards you're dealt. I think a good geriatric care manager will be able to frame that up and reframe it up for other family members. But the last thing you want to do is beat your head up against the wall, or have you have your loved one even. Experience that drama and trauma of beating your head up against the wall. Well, Just move on to what you have. Right, and that's so important because you don't want somebody caring for someone who doesn't want to be there caring for them. It's, uh, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Jamie, last question. Uh, this probably turns out to be more common than anybody could imagine. Absolutely. This is all the time. In fact, just like addictions, which is interesting, it becomes a family illness because the addiction ricochets off of everybody. I always talk about this, and it's probably another whole show ahead of us, is the co-addiction, the codependency that family caregiving kicks in. So I see this happening across the country, and places like Caregiver SOS are places where you can get some sanity back and hear these words. CaregiverSOS.org is the place you can go for sanity. Thank you to Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you again soon right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.